You're listening to an Ono Media Podcast. Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and let's start out with a story out of Alaska, where a woman has been sentenced for killing her best friend as part of a catfishing scheme that fulfilled an Indiana man's fetish of death. Yeah, it's confusing and so incredibly heartbreaking because the teens involved in this story were vulnerable and they were manipulated. There are multiple players here. I'll do my best to keep everyone on track, but let's just get to it. Let's unpack it. Denali Bremer had a horrible childhood and I can't explain it any other way. Her mother had multiple partners and at times she lost custody of all five of her daughters and then she regained it and then she lost it again. It was just a vicious cycle. But the tipping point in Denali's roller coaster of a childhood came when the man that Denali's mother had invited into her life killed Denali's two month old baby sister in front of Denali. Now, her two older sisters said the trauma was never healed for Denali even when she was adopted into a new family. Understandably, the trauma caused Denali to be socially, mentally, and emotionally delayed. And according to her sisters, she surrounded herself with people who only made her difficulties more pronounced. One of those people was a digital friend, someone she met on the internet. Denali struck up an online relationship with a man in Indiana that she knew as Tyler, But his real name was Darren Schillmiller, and he lived in Kansas, and he actually wasn't much older than Denali, even though he had convinced her he was a mature man who had made millions. He totally catfished her. He sent her photos of a handsome man who wasn't him, and during the catfishing, he revealed his desires of wanting to watch a murder and a sexual assault. As the fantasies were discussed, he began promising Denali that he would give her $9 million if she would film a killing and send it to him. All right, this seems outrageous, but I would have to imagine it wasn't that difficult to develop this scheme and manipulate this young woman into doing it. And what did Darren have to lose in this thing? Nothing. If Denali doesn't do it, there's no loss. If she does do it, You get to have your fetish fulfilled, and I'm sure Darren's probably thinking he won't get in trouble. Well, the easily manipulated Denali hatched a plan. Her best friend, 19-year-old Cynthia Hoffman, was the easiest target. Cynthia's dad refers to Cynthia as developmentally delayed and also said Denali knew she could pull off the ruse with Cynthia being the target. Denali gathered her friend group on that June of 2019 day. The group included 16-year-old homeless teen Caden McIntosh, 19-year-old Caleb Leland, Cynthia, her best friend, and Denali, so there's those guys, and then there were two other underage teens who haven't been identified. Now, the group ventured off to a hike at Thunderbird Falls, and it seems Cynthia was the one not included in on the plans to murder and rape one of the group. But Darren, the catfisher, he was totally involved. On that day, Denali was Snapchatting everything, taking pictures and videos and sending them to Darren, who was getting more and more worked up back in Indiana. 
Darren had told Denali, in order for her to receive the $9 million, she would need to film sexually assaulting a child of about eight or nine years old. And then he also requested video of a 15-year-old experiencing the same thing. And then he upped the desire by requesting the killing and assault of her friend. Well, on that day, it seems Darren was acting as the director of his violent fantasy, instructing Denali what to do as she sent him the various videos and pictures. As the group was hiking, they paused to smoke some weed and just really just take a break. It was then that Denali encouraged the group to duct tape each other and take photos with most, if not all, of their clothes off. Denali had a gun, and she was making it seem like they were staging these photos. As she convinced Cynthia to participate, they placed the tape around Cynthia's ankles and wrists. They then convinced her to place a piece of tape over her mouth. Once she was gagged, Cynthia began panicking. To calm her, Caden, that's the 16-year-old, he helped remove the tape from Cynthia's mouth and wrists. According to a police affidavit, Denali said Cynthia threatened to call the police. She was going to tell the police that she had been sexually assaulted and kidnapped. It was then that Caden allegedly took the gun from Denali and in a drug-fueled daze, he shot Cynthia in the back of the head and shoved her body into the river. As the group calculated what had just happened, they began formulating a plan. Denali texted Cynthia's dad and said that she'd actually just dropped Cynthia off at a local park. They then burned the gun and Cynthia's person clothes and her state ID. Well, initially, Cynthia's father reported her as missing, but tragically, that report was approached softly. Authorities felt that Cynthia was an adult and that she could come and go as she pleased. But much pleading by her father caused authorities to start digging. And after pushing back on Denali's claims about dropping Cynthia at the park, the story fell apart and Denali was arrested and Cynthia's body was found bound with duct tape in the Eklutna River near Thunderbird Falls. Now the messages between Darren and Denali were discovered. The pictures and videos told the story and all the players were tracked down. Darren was arrested and tracked down in Indiana. Caden and Denali are arrested in Alaska. And the two juveniles, well, they were arrested and processed through the juvenile justice system. Remember, Caden's 16. He wasn't so lucky. His case was transferred to the adult side of the justice system, despite his young age. And then the justice system, well, it ground to a halt due to COVID. But finally, last year, Denali pled guilty to one count of murder in the first degree. Her other charges that included kidnapping and child pornography, they were dropped as part of the plea deal. And here's the update. This week, Denali was sentenced for the murder of Cynthia Hoffman. Now, the state had suggested that Denali serve 99 years for her part in the murder, even though she did not pull the trigger. The state contended that Denali could be labeled as the, quote, worst kind of offender, and that justified the 99 years. Attorney Patrick McKay, who was representing the state, said that Denali essentially executed Cynthia in a murder-for-hire plot. He said she conspired with numerous other individuals in and out of Alaska, and those individuals' lives were forever altered. He then said she may not have pulled the trigger, but this never would have happened if it weren't for Denali. 
Now, her lawyer suggested that she only be sentenced to 80 years, with 20 of those years suspended. After hearing both arguments, Judge Andrew Peterson concluded that despite Denali's troubled youth, she had committed a premeditated murder for hire that was tragic and senseless. Judge Peterson described watching a video of Cynthia Hoffman's last moments, where he observed her being duct taped on the ground at Thunderbird Falls. He called that video one of the most difficult pieces of evidence he had ever had to watch in his position. He noted that Denali showed no remorse after the murder, and in fact, she went on to engage in other criminal conduct. He then sentenced Denali to 99 years in prison. But there's other players here, right? What happened to Darren, the catfisher? Well, he was also sentenced in January to 99 years in prison with none of those years suspended. And Caleb Leland, who was also involved in the ruse, but we didn't hear much about him. Well, he pled guilty to one count of murder in the second degree. That happened last year. He will be sentenced in June by the same judge who sentenced Denali. Now, it's been recommended in his plea deal that his maximum term of imprisonment be 75 years with 25 years suspended. And of course, the judge can reduce that amount. And the same video evidence will be reviewed as part of that sentencing. Well, what about Caden, who allegedly pulled the trigger in Cynthia's murder? Well, he didn't take a plea deal, and his trial is pending. Let's remember Cynthia. At the time of her death, she had most recently graduated from Robert Service High School, and she was attending the ACT program in Anchorage. So that program teaches developmentally delayed adults some skills that will help them transition into the workforce. Through that program, she had worked in restaurants, but her dad said she was most comfortable being his right-hand man in his repair business. Her parents also noted her kind heart and said she was welcoming to anyone. I hope for those parents that the completion of the sentencing is aiding her family in the grief process they are navigating. Now let's give an update to a man serving a life sentence for several bombings that killed multiple people and, as he claimed, caused destruction while the world was watching. Eric Rudolph was born in 1966 to a very religious and strict family unit. And school just wasn't his thing. By the time he reached ninth grade, Eric called it quits, and he began working with his older brother as a carpenter in the North Carolina area. When he was 18 years old, Eric and his mother moved for some time to a compound in Missouri, and there he worshipped with the Church of Israel. Now, that church was really in its infancy. It had only just been established in 1972. So when Eric was there in 1984, the church was well known for its strong white supremacist strains. Eric then went on to join the army, but was discharged for using marijuana. After his stint in the military, Eric realigned himself with white supremacy groups. He entered and exited various groups that espoused those beliefs. Finally, when Eric was 29... He said he wanted the world to know about his dissatisfaction with the U.S. government, most specifically for the government sanctioning abortion. Because of his anger, he built a pipe bomb loaded with five pounds of three-inch nails and shrapnel. On July 26, 1996, Eric left that bomb under a bench at the main stage at the Centennial Olympic Park in Atlanta. 
The very next morning, over 50,000 people had gathered to celebrate the world's best athletes and also to enjoy a concert at the Summer Olympics. On that morning, Eric made two anonymous 911 calls warning about the bomb before it was set to detonate. Despite the warning, the bomb exploded and immediately killed 44-year-old Alice Hawthorne, who was attending the Olympics with her daughter. The explosion was also the trigger for another death when a cameraman on assignment at the Olympics suffered a fatal heart attack. And over 100 people experienced injuries due to the blast. So you might be listening to this update, and if you're over, say, 40 years old, you might be saying, wait, I thought a security guard planted that bomb. Well, that's fair to confuse the two men. Because Richard Jewell, a Centennial Olympic Park security guard, was initially hailed as a hero during the bombing because he was the first to spot the bomb and had helped to clear some people out of the area. But when the FBI was feeling pressure from around the world to find the person who had planted the bomb, they turned their attention to the security guard, Richard Jewell, and ultimately blamed him for the explosion and the death of Alice. Richard was never charged officially. But the FBI thoroughly and publicly searched his home twice, they questioned his associates, they investigated his background, and they maintained 24-hour surveillance of him. The scrutiny began to ease only after Richard's attorneys hired an ex-FBI agent to administer a polygraph, which Jewel passed. After 88 days of massive public scrutiny, the FBI cleared Richard of any wrongdoing, But that didn't clear his name in the court of public opinion, which is why some of you might be thinking, wait, a guy named Eric did the bombing? Well, actually, Eric did do the bombing, and it wasn't the only bombing he executed before he was finally caught. His next bombing, which was six months after the Olympic bombing, was also in Atlanta, but this time he targeted an abortion clinic. Fifty people were injured in that attack. And then, just one month after the abortion clinic bombing, two bombs were detonated at a lesbian nightclub in Midtown Atlanta, where five people were wounded. Then, in January of 1998, that was just a few months after the nightclub bombing, Eric targeted another family planning clinic, except this time he traveled to Birmingham, Alabama. In that explosion a Birmingham police officer named Robert Sanderson was killed and a nurse was critically injured. But just completing the bombings didn't seem to be enough for Eric. He must have needed the notoriety because between the nightclub bombing and the abortion clinic bombing in Alabama, Eric began sending letters to local Atlanta news stations where he claimed responsibility for the bombings on behalf of the Army of God. He claimed in the letters that the first bomb that went off was for supporters of abortion and homosexuality. And then he said the second bomb was designed to target federal agents. It was the Alabama bombing where Eric got sloppy. Two men had watched Eric leave the scene of the bombing, and he had raised enough concern with the men that they actually wrote down his license plate number. Now, the FBI named him as the prime suspect for the Alabama bombing just two weeks after it occurred, but they had to find him. He was elusive, and as the FBI tied him to the other bombings, they publicly put him on the FBI fugitive list and offered a $1 million reward for information leading to his capture. So where was he? 
while Eric had fled to the Appalachian wilderness and successfully remained hidden for years. During that time, his family continued to support him, so much so that his brother Daniel videoed himself cutting off his left hand with a radial saw. He said he inflicted the gruesome injury in an attempt to send a message to the FBI and the media about how serious the family was in supporting their brother and son. All right, because you might be questioning, the hand was successfully reattached. And I'm going to go out on a limb, pardon the pun, and say that the message he was sending didn't quite accomplish what he had hoped. Well, Eric didn't get captured by some massive manhunt. No stealthy Samaritan received the $1 million reward for providing information. When Eric got captured, it was quite literally by accident. In May of 2003, a rookie police officer saw Eric rummaging through a dumpster. He was hungry. And he was just trying to find some food. The routine arrest happened because the officer was worried Eric had been trying to steal from the Save-A-Lot store where the dumpster was located. And that's how a fugitive, who had been on the run for five years, met his fate with the FBI. When he was questioned by the FBI, he revealed that he had buried more than 250 pounds of dynamite in western North Carolina, including a fully constructed bomb with a detonator. Agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, along with the FBI, located the bomb and safely destroyed it. After jockeying back and forth, Eric struck an agreement with the FBI where he would cop to all the bombings in order to avoid the death penalty. Eric released a statement about the plea deal, explaining his actions. He rationalized the bombings as serving the cause of anti-abortion and anti-gay terrorism. In his statement, he claimed that he had, quote, deprived the government of its goal of sentencing him to death, and that, Again, quote, the fact that he entered an agreement with the government is purely a tactical choice on his part and in no way legitimizes the moral authority of the government to judge this matter or to determine his guilt. Okay, well, he might have thought that, but that didn't stop the government from sentencing Eric to four life terms in prison without parole. And Eric has for the last 19 years spent 23 hours a day alone in a small concrete cell. His plea deal hasn't stopped him and his lawyers from exhausting all of his appeals. And that's where this update comes into play. This week, an appeals court upheld his life sentence, saying that Eric waived his right to appeal when he entered the guilty plea in the first place. Eric's lawyer argued his arson conviction was no longer considered a violent crime under new federal law. So, that lawyer theorized he should not have to serve life in prison. The court, however, argued, though Eric claims to be challenging the validity of his underlying convictions, the relief Eric sought in the district courts was actually tied entirely to his sentencing. Then, Eric's lawyer also argued he's actually innocent because someone else theoretically could be convicted for setting a fire on their own property or for committing arson with recklessness rather than committing it with intent, neither of which would qualify as violent crimes. So what he's saying there is because he didn't have bad intent, it's not a violent crime. Well, the court, they called that argument preposterous. And I would agree. 
You built the bombs, you planted the bombs, and you detonated the bombs that killed two people and injured dozens more. There was intent. Well, the conclusion of the judges read like this. Eric Rudolph is bound by the terms of his own bargain. He negotiated to spare his life, and in return, he waived the right to collaterally attack his sentences in any post-conviction proceedings. We will not disrupt that agreement. So Eric Rudolph will die in prison. And what about Richard Jewell? Well, he died in 2007 at the age of 44 from natural causes. His wife found him dead on the floor of their bedroom. He'd been suffering from kidney failure prior to his death, and basically his overall health had been declining. Despite the trial by media that he had experienced, Richard continued to work as a police officer and a sheriff's deputy. If you actually want to learn more about Richard's story, Netflix has a multi-series show called Manhunt, Deadly Games. And I also wanted to do a quick mention about Alice Hawthorne. Remember, she's the beautiful 44-year-old woman who died at the Olympic Village bombing. She was noted to be a magnificent woman who was mentoring young African-American women from Albany for the Miss Black Teen America pageant. Her daughter called her a hot, spicy 3000 diva. At the time of her death, she was carrying a Gucci purse with $2,000 in it. And humanity actually prevailed that day. When her daughter was given the purse, all $2,000 was still located inside. And the officer, Robert Sanderson, that was killed in the family planning clinic bombing, well, he was just trying to earn a little extra money for his family by moonlighting as a security guard at the clinic. His full-time position was with the Birmingham Police Department, where he had served for nine years before his murder. He left behind his wife and one child. I wish we could actually remember all those injured by Eric's misguided beliefs and violent actions. And I couldn't end today's episode without bringing you this story. Back in July of 2018, 38-year-old Calvin Batista was trying to cross the border from Canada at the Champlain Port of Entry. Calvin lived in Richmond Hill, New York, so this would seem like a pretty normal trip coming back from Canada and into New York. Except... Customs and Border Protection officers noticed weird lumps in Calvin's pants. Agents pulled Calvin aside, and at first, they just looked at his documents, like his passport. But then, they did a body pat-down, and they discovered three young adult Burmese pythons contained in plastic bags that were secured to his pants, and those plastic bags with the snakes were resting near his inner thighs. Okay, first off, this is against the law because Calvin did not have permits for the snakes. Second off, I was so creeped out by reading this story. I have a completely irrational fear of all snakes, even the little water snakes that don't harm anyone. Well, Calvin was smuggling snakes since he didn't have the permits. And Burmese pythons are considered invasive and destructive. In fact, in the Everglades in Florida, they are listed as the most concerning invasive species, the pythons can be so deadly, they have dramatically decreased the populations of raccoons, opossums, and bobcats. What? Do you guys know how big a bobcat is? Those snakes get huge if they can take down a bobcat. Last summer, a 19-foot Burmese python was captured in the Big Cypress National Preserve in Florida. That is amazing to me. Well, Calvin 
He had purchased these snakes at a pet store in Canada for about $2,500. Calvin was sentenced this week for his role in the smuggling attempt. He will be required to serve one year of probation and pay a $5,000 fine. Now go at it. Make all the jokes you want. I just had to tell you that story. Well, that's your Monday episode of Rise and Crime. You guys, thanks so much for being here. I love doing these updates for you. We're actually kind of working into maybe doing a few more besides the two that you get by podcast and YouTube every week. I'll keep you updated on that. Um, And I know I say this all the time, but thank you so much. I would love if you would give me a five-star rating and a review. It really helps the podcast grow. And of course, it's free. So it's an easy thing to do. Please tell a friend and subscribe to the podcast or to the YouTube channel. And you can join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules and keep safe out there.